Welcome to Ending Student Homelessness, a podcast that brings together folks who are committed to understanding and finding housing solutions. I am Misty Blue, a researcher at the University of Minnesota's Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare, and I've had the honor of interviewing a series of guests committed to this work. I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Charlotte Kinsley. Charlotte Kinsley is the Homeless Highly Mobile Manager for Minneapolis Public Schools, where she supports students and families experiencing homelessness. Over the past 20 years, she has developed programming and initiatives in family shelters and supportive housing facilities in Minneapolis. Her focus in this work has been to support the development of young people and to advocate for the importance of stable housing for all families. She currently serves as co-chair of the Hennepin County Family Coordinated Entry Leadership Committee and as a member of the Operations Board for Hennepin County's Continuum of Care. She helps coordinate the Stable Home, Stable Schools initiative, which includes a recent expansion through a Homework Starts with Home grant. Well, welcome. Thank you for being here and joining me in this conversation today. Yeah, thank you ha- for having me. Can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, so my name is Charlotte Kinsley. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I am the Homeless and Highly Mobile Manager for Minneapolis Public Schools. Can you please describe your work for us? Absolutely. So I work with um, staff at Minneapolis Public Schools to support our students who are experiencing homelessness. So I have a small team of folks who work tirelessly to identify and enroll and support families who are experiencing homelessness and then also really just across the district work to raise awareness about the strengths and needs of our students who are experiencing homelessness and as a district move us to a place where we are really um, educating those students and supporting those students. Um, we our, our goal of our work is really twofold so part of it is around stabilizing families. So really working to connect them with resources um, for stability, access to shelter, um, and those pieces that really either prevent or end an episode of homelessness. Um, and then um, also while, while a family or a student is experiencing homelessness, really making sure that their education needs continue to be met um, and that we as a school and as a district are, are supporting them as much as possible um, in the midst of an episode of homelessness. Excellent. Um, it sounds like timing is super appropriate or super important in your work and also proximity to families. So making sure that you know you stay in tune with the families that you're working with. What are some ways that you um, and your team do that? Yeah, yeah, you're right. It is really important, um, particularly when we have families who are maybe moving from out of state or are new to enroll in our district um, or are switching schools, it's really important that we minimize the lag for those students and um, minimize disruption to their education as much as possible. So you're right, it is really critical that we are identifying those students right away and enrolling them. Um, You know, with McKinney-Vento, the rights of those students are protected. So they have a right to immediate enrollment they have a right to transportation back to their school of origin. So if if we have a, um, a family who ends up becoming homeless and doubles up or is couch hopping in Brooklyn Park or Brooklyn Center, like it is our, we, ha- we have to transport that student back to their same school if that's in their best interest. So really important that um, both our district and all schools and districts are really responsive to students in the midst of that mobility. 
Um, we do that a number of different ways. So we have staff that work on site um, at People Serving People and our other shelters. And so when a family comes into shelter, we really quickly know, and if they're not already enrolled, we get them enrolled. Or if they um, are, are just needing new transportation, we can quickly get that set up. Um, but then school social workers are a point of contact in the school. And so they also really support that that quick responsiveness and um, submitting a new transportation request when a move happens. Um, we also have um, a, a contract with taxis so that for our students who are either moving so regularly that our transportation system just can't keep up or for some other reason our transportation process isn't working for them, we can utilize those on call ride services for those students to make sure that their schooling is not interrupted. It's so great to hear uh, all of the ways that families can be supported. It sounds like there's a lot of teamwork that happens, a lot of people kind of working together to lift up families who um, who are going through a really tough moment. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I will just say one more thing about that is that even with the protections of McKinney-Vento, we know that students' education continues to be interrupted because of housing instability. Um, you know, you, ha you have that transportation right. And even with that, um, last year, 65% of our students who were identified as homeless and highly mobile ended the year in the same school they started in. So only 65%. So that's a lot of movement. And we know that school stability really matters too. And so I think it's really important that not only that we have responsive um, procedures and processes, which is very important, but also that we're paying attention to that that's not enough um, and that the experience of housing instability, even with those protections, continues to impact um, a young person's ability to learn. Yeah, it sounds like there's there's more work to be done there. And do you have um, any, like, if it were up to you, do you see any other ways that more support could be added to maybe reach the other 35% of kids who you know, who are affected by this? You know, I think it really does come down to um, strategies around affordable housing, because I think, you know, a lot of those students that aren't able to stay in that same school, it's because they weren't able to find any housing here. So maybe they moved to a different state. I mean, we see so much movement, not just within a city or within a community, but across state lines as well. And so I really think um, a deeper investment in affordable housing um, would would minimize a lot of that movement. And so I'm, I'm newer to this. I'm, I'm still learning all of the ins and outs of this issue, but do you, is McKinney-Vento only in Minnesota? Are there other um, types of programs like across across different states or across the nation? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a federal law. So all students who are experiencing homelessness are protected under McKinney-Vento. So whether you're at a charter school or a public school in Minnesota or Texas or Montana, those rights are protected. And, and the rights are really around making sure um, that students who are experiencing so homelessness have the same right to education as their stably housed peers. Um, so practically that looks like you know, making sure that transportation is provided back to school of origin. They automatically qualify for free and reduced lunch. Um, they don't have to have some of the paperwork required for enrollment right away. So it's really um, intended to smooth that transition. Um, and, and, you know, 
quite honestly, it, it, it was designed at a time, I think, when homelessness really often was an episode. So you have an episode of homelessness and then it gets resolved and you're stably housed. And I will say that now, you know, I think that 65% stat really points to it's not often just one episode of homelessness anymore, unfortunately. Just the lack of affordability is is leading to so much instability. Um, and so even with those protections, we still see a lot of movement. But it is a federal law and all students are protected by it. Thanks for that. Um, so it sounds like you and your team are in high levels of movement and change and shift and sounds like, you know, of uh, responsiveness and adapt adaptability are important qualities and skills that you have cultivated. I'm curious for just to know a little bit more about you, what led you to do this type of work? Yeah, so um, I have always been really interested in like issues of social justice. And um, I was raised in a household where um, like the preferential option for the poor and, a, and a, you know, sort of a the mandate to judge a society by uh, how the most vulnerable in a community are doing was like very much a part of our conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, and, you know, as a young person growing up, while we didn't have a lot of money, I never worried about where I was going to sleep at night. And it, it sort of hit me, I think I was like in middle school or something where it hit me that like community members and especially children would not have a place to sleep at night. And so that, that has stuck with me, that sort of like, um, sort of, uh, frustration and anger around that reality and, and who that impacts. Um, and, you know, I've understood more and more over time about sort of our racist past that led us to where we are today. Um, but I would say just like a deep sense of, you know, wanting our community to be equitable and particularly wanting all children in our community to have what they need to reach their full potential so that is sort of what like initially kind of drew me to the work. But then I, I was um, really lucky after graduating college to spend about 13 years in um, working at a homeless shelter where I got to work with both parents and kids and did some program development. And what I really appreciate about that experience was it taught me so much about how you um, how you solve homelessness, both like within like a particular family situation, but also on the community level. And I would say I maybe moved from, you know, some of my background probably was flavored with some white saviorism of like, you know, we just need to fix this for people. And I think I really learned in that work how important it is to center the voices of people who are experiencing homelessness, that they know what needs to happen. and that they should be leading the the community solution, not only the solution for their own family, but our solution as a community. And so um, learned a lot from the parents and the kids that I worked with. And that sort of led me, then I worked at Simpson Housing um, for six years where I really deepened. They are just a really strong commitment to racial equity and justice and centering the voices of those most impacted. And so I learned a lot there too. Um, and also got to work more closely with individual families and saw the, I saw what school could be um, Mm -hmm. in both the good and the bad. So I saw situations where really just brilliant young people that we would work with in programming um, 
And then we would hear about their school experience. And it was like we were talking about two different kids. Like the mm-hmm. their school experience was so hard and actually added to the trauma of the instability they were experiencing. And then on the flip side, I saw um, situations where school really was an anchor for students and for parents, that it was a place they felt welcomed. It was a place they were inspired and, you know, recognize their own strengths and all of that and so really wanted to be part and that's when I then moved into this role with Minneapolis Public Schools um, that is a role that was laid the groundwork for was laid so strong between Zib, Hins, and Ryan Strack who are my predecessors really MPS has a really strong commitment to supporting students experiencing homelessness and that awareness um, was really raised by my predecessors and so wanted to move into that role to deepen that and to build that so that all students had that positive experience that I saw happen with some of the students I was working with at Simpson. Wow, that's fantastic. There is so much that I want to touch on from from what you just shared. Um, You talked about um, growing up in a neighborhood that had a specific uh, value system. The preferential option for the poor. Yes, I'm curious. I, I, you know, my background is in... um, domestic violence prevention and we had something similar at the organization that I worked at where we kind of judged ourselves based on are we reaching the most vulnerable right so could you say a little bit more about that piece yeah yeah so the preferential option for the poor really comes out of um Roman Catholic like social justice teaching um and so that was that was where that sort of language came from I I I appreciate that um connection to that because I do think that's what it's pointing to is that you you judge your sort of response as a community based off how those most vulnerable are being impacted or being treated and I think we can say the same thing within our school system that if we create an education system that works for the students that um are most vulnerable it will work for everyone um and I I also feel really um Sometimes when I use words like poor and vulnerable, I, I, I worried that we're like painting this picture again of sort of that like, oh, these like, you know, poor people that don't have any strengths or skills and somebody needs to come and save them. I, I want to be careful about that language because it's very much a system problem. Um, so I appreciate the the like idea and the concept behind that. And I think um, it's really important that we partner that with a like, deep awareness of the strength and resiliency of people and um, and that those who might sort of be categorized as the most vulnerable are also incredibly strong and have the answers. Um, so while I appreciate that language, I think we could probably use some uh, updating to to reflect that that strength and resiliency that yeah. that is present within communities that have been marginalized. Um, and impacted by our systems. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's such a such an important point. Language is so powerful, and I think that yes, those that might have for sure have antiquated language there, and I think it does deserve a rework. Like if we were to, I guess, shine a light on the systems or the policies or things that are marginalizing people more so, um, we would we would find more solutions. I think, but I appreciate that concept. Um, and also just wanted to say like 13 years working at the, um, the shelter that you worked for, that's such a, a good, like a, such a strong accomplishment. So that's, that's fantastic. Um, so you talked a little bit about, 
for yourself and your own journey and in your own um, path, you talked a little bit about flipping white saviorism. And could you say a little bit more about, because I really appreciated you saying we need to let people who are experiencing homelessness lead this work. What does it mean for you to be a good follower? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I, I'm going to reflect back on my role at Simpson Housing to kind of help explain how I see this and what I've learned from it. Um, I was tasked with developing youth programming um, for our scattered site families. So we had really strong education program programming at our site-based um, transitional housing, but most of our families were living scattered site and really were asking for the education support that we were able to provide on site. Um, and 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 Simpson, because of their commitment to racial equity and centering the voices of those most impacted, gave me the space and time to bring in the voices of both students and parents into the development of that programming. And so rather than me just sitting in my office or um, or reading some research or, you know, which some of that happened too, but I was able to pull together groups of people and really ask what what it was that they would want out of extra programming and to do that in a way that honored their time. So um, we were able to provide stipends for people's time. We were able to show them where it where their input was leading to so they could see the outcome of their involvement. Um, and I just, I, from that experience, so believe that that is what created strong programming is that it, it was led by the parents and the students that would be involved in the programming. And so I think as a, as a leader, it's really important, particularly a white leader working with a population that is mostly black and brown families, that it's really important that, um, I see myself as sort of um, maybe bringing people together, um, raising issues that are brought, but really partnering with those most impacted to to be making those decisions. That it's not me making those decisions, but it's me partnering with families and students to make those decisions. Um, we have a Stable Home, Stable Schools, which is a really exciting partnership and initiative that Homework Starts With Home is now um, expanding for us. But our parent advisory council for that um, really has just in a very short amount of time helped inform our work. And so just another example of how um, there may be things that you just don't think about. Like I, I was able to have a parent review like a robocall that was going to go out to all families. And the way I worded it, when she heard it, she heard something different than what I was trying to convey. And so she was able to work with me on changing some of that language in that robocall so that parents paid attention to it. And so it, it, that feels like a small thing, but it makes a really big difference. So it sounds like it's a little bit more effort to amplify voices of people who are experiencing homelessness, but at the end of the day, it kind of sounds like the programming benefited um, from that greatly, and so did the lives of, of the people that you were serving. So, Yes, absolutely. One other thing that you mentioned um, when you were telling me about what led you to do this work was about seeing schools who were able to support families well, and then schools 
uh, school systems or school programs that, you know, maybe didn't um, hit the mark. Could you say a little bit about uh, what schools were doing that seemed to work really well? Sure. Yeah. Um, So I think so much of it is about the adults that are working with kids and their capacity and ability to connect and support those young people. So I think when I saw it working really well, um, there were the teachers and support staff and social workers who had the time to be able to get to know the parent and the child and saw their whole person and really built them up and believed in them. And, um, you know, I just, I, I think about one student in particular who really had had so much trauma in his short life and school and sitting in a classroom was scary and hard for him because of everything that he had been through. And he would sometimes just get up and run the halls. And there were some some schools that I worked with who that would have been, the response would have been combative. Um, and it would have actually added to his trauma and his um, challenges at school. But this school absolutely saw him for all of who he was, including a great leader, which he was and is, um, and really were able to provide the support that he needed to be able to stay in the classroom. And it was a lot of work. I mean, he needed he needed time with, um, there was a really wonderful special education teacher that would just sit with him when he was in that space and and give him the time he needed to settle down and calm down and and move back into the classroom. Um, they were they partnered with us, so you know our staff that knew knew mom and knew the kid could really help support that. But they needed the time and space to do that. And I think so often our classrooms are um, there are lots of students like this student in a classroom, and teachers and support staff don't always have. Um, sometimes it's about awareness, but a lot of times it's about even just the capacity to meet the needs of all of their students. Some of our schools within um, MPS, 50 to 60% of the student body has experienced homelessness at some point Mm -hmm. during their time at MPS. So you think about knowing that experiencing homelessness carries with it a level of trauma that that we see in education outcomes. So even when you're isolating out poverty, students who have experienced homelessness um, fare worse in terms of academic outcomes. So attendance, literacy, graduation rates, all of those things. And that's not to say that those students aren't brilliant and capable, but the experience of homelessness is very challenging and does impact their ability to learn and succeed in the classroom. And so you you think about a school where 50 to 60% of the student body has that experience. And if teachers and support staff aren't really well supported and given the space and time to be able to meet the needs of those students, then it's going to be very challenging, um, both for the staff and for the students and parents. Yeah. Sounds like um, students in general, but then also students who have experienced homelessness or other traumas, definitely, like you're saying, need more space and more time and more support, and then our caregivers, including teachers, need the same. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And our parents, too. I mean, I think sometimes we forget about parents or, um, I mean, I have yet to meet a parent who does not want 
the best education experience for their child. And, and sometimes we miss that when we don't understand what it's like to experience homelessness, where when, you know, you look at Minneapolis and, you know, housing affordability, like the number of available units for people making 30% of the area median income is zero. And so you're a parent and you're struggling to either raise your income, find housing that you can afford. Um, you know, the transportation factor of even getting to these places to see them and you're in shelter. I mean, the layers of um, barriers that we put in front of people to be able to access affordable housing. And so sometimes parents aren't able to respond to schools in the way that we might expect them to. And so understanding that that is not a reaction to wanting to be involved or wanting their child to be successful, but really understanding that that might just be the place that they're at right now because of our systems yeah. that have very much marginalized people and not uh, provided space for affordable housing for all. Yeah, it sounds like we could do a lot to sort of remove obstacles for people. Um, and I guess that kind of brings me to our next question that you and I are recording this on Zoom because we are in a global pandemic currently. Um, and I'm curious as to how COVID-19 has impacted your work. Oh, it has dramatically impacted our work. Um, Minneapolis Public Schools right now is fully distance learning. Um, we are just starting to move into phase three, which is supports at school for um, particular student groups for whom distance learning is really not working. Um, and so we're just sort of starting that process. Um, but one thing that I think it has pointed out for for us, and it, it's not maybe something that was new to those of us who work really closely in this area, but I think it has broadened awareness that schools are so much more for our community than a place of education and that schools have filled the gaps um, that, that, are, that are existent in our community. And, I, and I'm thinking about gaps around housing, gaps around food and food insecurity, um, just the, those basic needs of our community members that are not being met, schools have become that place. So school has become a safe and stable place for people who don't have a home. Um, school has become a place where you can get two healthy meals and food to bring home on the weekend. Um, schools have become a place, and I think always have been, but where there are other caring adults um, that that are connected with you and are uh, responsive to your needs and your strengths. Um, and that touch point of school is missing. Um, and that does matter. I mean, I, I think teachers and school staff are have been absolutely incredible at pivoting to this online platform and are working so hard. And it's not the same as seeing students. And so I think we've really seen um, how challenging it is. And even with, I mean, we have home delivery of meals. We have, um, you know, food boxes that have a week's worth of of healthy food in them for students. You know, we have all these things that we've pivoted so that we can continue to meet those needs, but it is it does not replace that touch point of school. We actually are very low in our numbers right now of, of students who are experiencing homelessness. So we're at about 60% of where we would normally be at this time, which uh, nationally other districts are seeing the same thing. And it's not because we think that that 
there's been a decrease in homelessness, it is the missing that touch point of school. And so we're, we're trying to get really creative around ways to identify those students. So we're making sure that we are supporting their needs as best we can. Um, but without that touch point, it's very challenging. Yeah, you, schools have schools play such a huge role um, for the community, uh, and like you said, are are a safe place um, for many, a sanctuary for many. I'm curious, as you know, we talked about proximity earlier, and you mentioned a couple of creative ways. What are you know? How are schools trying to stay close and in tune with the needs of families? Yeah, you know, one thing I've been really um, impressed with is the level of communication with parents. Um, so I, I think just because parents have, have had to be more involved in the, you know, the online learning and all of that, um, and staff have had to reach out and troubleshoot and work with parents and all of, all of those pieces. So I've been really impressed with the, I just think there's been much more communication with parents since we moved to distance learning. So that's one way is just that that regular communication with parents. That's not, again, we're still seeing that lower, that lower rate. So that's certainly not uh, filling the gap. We also just um, sent out a survey district-wide, which we haven't done specifically around housing stability before, but we sent out a survey asking people if they were one in a temporary housing situation due to a lack of affordable options or two needed resources to maintain their housing stability and so first i will just say that surveys don't necessarily reach our most mobile families so phone numbers change really regularly access to checking email and all of those things are not always very accessible so we know we're only reaching a portion of our student body but even with that, 30% of those that responded were in one of those two categories. So mm -hmm. either needed resources to maintain stability or were not stable. And so we used that as a way to then connect with those families that um, either needed the resources or were in a temporary situation to, to see if they would qualify as experiencing homelessness and then have those extra protections and those extra rights. And if not, other resources that may still be useful or beneficial to those to those families. So that adds up to, you know, close to 3000 students that that would have responded um, with that housing instability factor. That's great. So once you are identifying needs or once you're you're understanding um, the situation of families who do need extra support, do you then have a way to meet that need or are there other partnerships or other um, policy, you know, changes that need to happen in order for that to happen, in order for that those needs to be met? Yeah, so, um, so yes and no. So I would say in terms of meeting the needs, um, we do our best to stay connected and up to date with the resources that are available. So like a current example would be making sure that our our families who are behind in rent know that they can apply for the COVID funds, for the housing emergency assistance funds. And if they're not eligible for those funds, what are the other sources of funding that could potentially um, catch people up in their rent or mortgage um, before the eviction moratorium is lifted. And then the second piece of that is making sure that people do understand their rights under the eviction moratorium. Um, so 
so I say, yes, we stay up to date on resources. We connect, we partner with other community organizations that are doing really good work. And so we're sort of a, a bridge um, to external resources. And we also have internal resources. So the Stable Home, Stable Schools and Homework Starts With Home as a really powerful tool of an intervention. Um, and then we have other smaller sources of support that we can connect families to internally. So yes, and also um, so often families just need affordable housing and we cannot answer that for everybody because the gap is so huge. I mean, I think nationally they say that one in four that qualify for some sort of subsidized or affordable housing will actually get it. Um, so we know that there's a huge gap in in our ability to connect people with affordable housing. Um, and so that is a, a resource that we are not able to provide for many families. Excellent. You mentioned the eviction moratorium that we have currently in Minnesota, and I know we heard about it on another one of our podcast um, episodes. Could you remind uh, our listeners what that is and then say a little bit about how you use it in your work? Yeah, absolutely. So so we have a local eviction moratorium um, that is connected to the peacetime declaration that the governor has been extending 30 days at a time. And so it's tied to that peacetime emergency declaration. Um, it is a very strong um, statement of eviction prevention. And so there are very few legal reasons that someone could be evicted right now. Um, and so it's really important that people know that and understand that. So I would say how we're using that in our work is just making sure that our staff know this information and are sharing that with parents in conversations that they're having. And that we that was one of the resources that we shared out when we did the survey as well. Um, we are still hearing about evictions and we're hearing about evictions that probably were not legal. And oftentimes tenants just did not know their rights. Oh. Um, and so we have a strong response system when, when we know about what's happening. Um, and Homeline has been really wonderful and Mid-Minnesota Legal Aid have been wonderful. So those are really important resources for the community if they're ever not sure. Um, that would be a great place to check if um, if an eviction is is legal or not and how to get support if it's not. Um, and then we have a federal eviction moratorium as well that runs through the end of the year. So that expires December 31st and was put out by the CDC. And that is a it's an important tool and and it's helpful and it's not as strong as our local moratorium. So our local moratorium stands. Um, and then if that were to go away for any reason, which I hope it doesn't until we have a plan for making sure that we um, can fill the gaps in, in the instability that will come when that's lifted, um, that will stand, but we would be covered by the federal until the end of the year. Yeah, knowing your rights is you know something I keep hearing um, from you and that's such an important tool um, for families and for people. Also, I've heard a lot today about the excellent tools that we have in especially in being responsive and in being, you know, in a moment of crisis. Um, if you could re-envision or reimagine a system long-term, what would be one of those long-term tools or keys to ending student homelessness? Affordable housing. <laughs> um, and I know that sounds simplistic, but I think the reality is um, so many families are experiencing homelessness simply because there's a lack of affordable options. And we need to pay attention to that and be honest about 
how we got where we are and who is experiencing homelessness as part of getting us to the solution. So there were, it, the system is working exactly how it was intended to work. And we cut people of color out of home ownership, out of um, particular areas um, for so long. And that racism and that discrimination continues to impact people today. And you can see that in who experiences homelessness. Um, I think in Minnesota, if you are a black resident, you are 16.4 times more likely to experience homelessness. It's the largest gap in the country. We also have the largest gap in home ownership um, between black and white residents. And so I think um, at a base level, we, we just need to make sure that we're investing in housing in a way that housing can be affordable to all of our community members. And until we do that, we will not solve homelessness. There are a number of other things that we can and should be doing, um, but that is very foundational to us moving the dial. And we're so far from that. I mean, I think even, even families who are in shelter, very few of them get connected with an affordable housing um, solution. And our families who are couch hopping or doubled up don't even qualify for any of our housing supports um, in our homeless response system. So the gap of access to affordable housing is is huge and is uh, the basis of sort of uh, what we need to solve homelessness is to make sure there's affordable housing for everyone. Sounds like there's a lot of work to do. We have a lot of dismantling to do. We have a lot of building to do together. Um, yeah. Where can our listeners hear more about you or find it, find out more about your work? Yeah. Um, if you go to our Minneapolis Public Schools website, um, you can just search either Homeless and Highly Mobile or my name and you could get connected there. Um, we haven't really talked much about Stable Home, Stable Schools, but I think that's a really powerful tool that and homework starts with home to both prevent homelessness and end homelessness for our families. And so um, Schoolhouse Connection, which is a national org, has a piece on stable homes, stable schools um, that I think is is something that would might be interesting to listeners. Um, and also just searching stable homes, stable schools more locally. The city has a page and the housing authority has a page on that as well. That's great. Thank you. This was really, I learned so much. I think um, it's been really great talking to you today. Yeah, you too. I appreciate the time and I appreciate the focus on this important issue. Thank you for listening to the Ending Student Homelessness podcast. This podcast was recorded on Anishinaabe and Dakota ancestral homelands. Indigenous people have historically and paradoxically faced homelessness at disproportionate rates in the state of Minnesota. Please visit our podcast page to learn about ways you can support local organizations committed to addressing this issue. This special podcast series has been created by the Homework Starts With Home Research Partnership. We are a collaborative state university school community project designed to integrate multi-system administrative data and analyze it in order to produce and disseminate high quality evidence pertinent to addressing the state and national challenge of student homelessness.